Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world. I'm Jen Williams. Yochi's out this week reporting on a trip to Puerto Rico, but I'm here with Zach Beecham, as well as our special guest, Maddie Glacius, whom most of you probably already know from our sister podcast, The Weeds. Today, we're going to be talking about the Iran nuclear deal, which is facing a threat this week. By Sunday, October 15th, President Trump is required by law to certify whether Iran is complying with the terms of the nuclear deal. And if he doesn't, the deal's status will be in serious jeopardy. And it sure sounds like he's not going to. We cannot abide by an agreement if it provides cover for the eventual construction of a nuclear program. So that's Trump speaking at the United Nations less than a month ago. Notice the less than enthusiastic applause. Right, the scattering of awkward applause. Um, But if you ask most of Trump's top national security aides, they say that Iran actually is complying with the deal and they support the U.S. staying in it. Do you believe it's in our national security interest at the present time to remain in the JCPOA? That's a yes or no question. Yes, Senator, I do. So that was Defense Secretary Jim Mattis uh, awkwardly waiting several seconds uh, to answer a question from Senator Angus King about the Iran deal uh, at a Senate hearing last week. Um, So they called it the JCPOA. That stands for the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. That's just the formal name for the Iran deal. Um, So what explains this discrepancy here? Why does Trump seem to hate the Iran deal uh, that his deputies say is working? Because Trump doesn't think about the issue on the level of detailed policy, right? Nothing that he's ever said indicates that the president knows much about what the Iran deal actually does. And we should probably back up and say what it does do, which is— Yeah, what does the Iran deal? (laughs) Right. So it's a very narrow agreement, right? Basically, what it does is trade U.S. and international sanctions on Iran, which were imposed as a result of its development of nuclear uh, facilities and fissile material— Um, that is things that can be used to make a nuclear bomb, Uh, it trades those for strict restrictions on Iran's program going forward for the next 10 to 15 years, depending on which provisions of the deal you're talking about. And so that is enforced via very, very rigorous international inspections from the International Atomic Energy Agency. And by all accounts, according to those inspections, Iran is complying with the limits on its program, which make it much further from a nuclear bomb and basically impossible to try to build one without... Uh, us noticing really quickly. So, uh, and I mean, I think I, I think it's important to understand that the United States had sanctions on Iran going back a long time, right? I mean, related to the embassy, related to a million different things. But that what's covered in this deal on the Iranian side is specifically their nuclear program. And what's covered in the deal on the non-Iranian side is specifically sanctions that the United States to an extent, but also to a large extent, other countries put on place in Iran because of the Iranian nuclear program, right? I mean, because I I think this is important here, right? Because a lot of the deal critics have this, like, larger beef with Iran. And so they would like to see Iran punished for these larger beefs. And the problem, the just, like, logical real-world problem that they're wrestling with is that the nuclear sanctions were very— harmful to Iran, and they were imposed because other countries were very concerned about the Iranian nuclear program. They don't necessarily share the American perspective on every regional security issue in the Middle East. So 
a lot of the the, the problem that that sort of the hawks are having here is that if the United States tears up the deal, these sanctions don't come back, right? They, that if you feel well by making the deal, right, like the Western allies gave away too much of the store to Iran or something like that. The United States cannot unilaterally cause European countries to re-sanction Iran. Right. right. We would just become the ones who are isolated if if we walk away from it. Right. Yeah. And I think it's important to to kind of lay out what those bigger beefs are that you raise. And that's that's totally right. Um so you know, like you said, you know, the like you both said, the Iran nuclear deal is very specifically a nuclear deal, right? It's narrowly tailored to the Iran nuclear program. Um, And that's by design. It on purpose left out a lot of the other bad actions that Iran does. So it's support for um, militant groups and terrorist groups throughout the Middle East, including Hezbollah and and Lebanon. Um, And uh, it's testing of ballistic missiles, which are related to the nuclear program, right? So if you're going to, you know, fire a nuclear weapon, you're probably going to put it on a ballistic missile. But at the same time, it's not necessarily related. Right, right? absolutely. There's this outdated strategic view that the only reason you would have a ballistic missile is because you want to put a nuclear weapon on it, which motivates a lot of the like, well, Iran is cheating on the spirit of the deal, which the president says, because they're testing ballistic missiles, which you'd think would be for nukes. But uh, according to basically every modern defense analyst, ballistic missiles can be used for all sorts of different things. You know, you could fire them at ships, for instance. Um, and this has been true and known to strategic planners for a long time. So Iran testing ballistic missiles isn't a sign that it secretly wants to build nuclear weapons. Right. At the same time, you're, you're totally right. At the same time, it's also a way to, you know, signal to the hardliners at home that you weren't completely cowed by, you know, right. the, the the powers that be, right? The, the American imperialists, right? Um, you know, so yes, we signed this deal, but look, we're still, you know, we're still tough. We're still making sure we have, you know, strong defenses. We're still going to do our you know, our missile tests, but the Obama administration initially and other countries, the other European countries who are part of the um, the Iran deal, which we should probably lay out. So it's the, the P5 plus one. So the five permanent members of the Security Council, US, UK, uh, France, China, Russia, um, and then the European Union was involved and then Germany. Yeah, the um, plus one then, specifically refers to Germany. Yeah, Germany. And then the European Union sent a delegate and was involved and then us and, and Iran. Um, so... So yeah, the uh, some of the European countries, especially as well as the Obama administration, initially wanted the ballistic missile program to be included as part of the broader nuclear deal, and Iran basically said, "No, no way, absolutely not. Like that's that's a non-starter." So they kind of tied it into this kind of other annex part that's like unrelated to the nuclear deal. So it's very specifically doesn't include that. But like you said, that's some of the stuff that Trump and, and Nikki Haley, UN ambassador, um, you know, have pointed to when they say that Iran is violating the spirit of the deal. Um, and this dovetails nicely with something Matt was pointing out earlier, which is that the U.S. has had sanctions on Iran, very punishing ones, for, for a long time, uh, going back decades, whereas the European sanctions are relatively new uh, and were you know, only imposed for the nuclear program. And that matters in this case because it means that the U.S. has never had business ties with Iran. And so U.S. sanctions, new ones that we might impose now or the reimposition of ones suspended by 
uh, the Iran deal wouldn't actually have that much bite unless there was a lot of European buy-in and buy-in from other from Asian countries also that have done some business with Iran. Right. Uh, and that's why, even though there are members of the administration like Mattis and National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, who are Iran hawks, if you listen to them talk about Iran, they talk, they cite all these dangerous activities. They want a more robust U.S. response to Iranian regional meddling. They don't want to tear up the deal. And the reason they don't want to is because they know that there wouldn't be a lot of benefits to doing it, even if they don't like its terms, even if they never would have signed it to begin with, which some of them, I think McMaster very well might not have if you were in charge, they now feel stuck and constrained by what the Obama administration did. And tearing it up would give Iran a lot of money uh, and would not get the Europeans on board because the Europeans still support the agreement. Uh, while also getting rid of these restrictions on Iran's nuclear program. And that's the worst of all possible worlds. Right. Just to clarify really quickly, when Zach said the U.S. has never had business ties with Iran, he means after 1979, after the the Islamic Revolution, we actually, they have a nuclear program because of us, because we gave them their first nuclear program. But it's but it's been a long time, right? Right. I just want so, to clarify so that nobody emails us about it. <laughs> but so so it was like when the Iranian nuclear program began to be an issue for U.S. foreign policy, right? American sanctions on Iran were already very strict. So while we did impose additional U.S. sanctions, those sanctions didn't do that much. What was really hurting the Iranian economy is that we persuaded other countries to to pile on with new sanctions of their own because other countries, I mean, just part of this is, you know, we can say like, oh, they're supporting international terrorist groups such as Hezbollah. And, you know, that's that's like a big deal in the United States. It's a it's a big deal in the United Arab Emirates. Um, it's a big deal in Lebanon. Probably Israel. <laughs> Israel. <laughs> kind of but, a big but, deal there. But, but many countries around the world just don't really care right. about that. Whereas everybody cares about nuclear proliferation, at least a little bit. You know what I mean? Like if if a if Peru was suddenly building a nuclear bomb, countries on the other side of the world would be like, hey, you know, like this is this is not great. Guys. The Peruvian bomb. Yeah, well, no, just, I'm just not trying to figure out what Peru would want a nuclear bomb for. <laughs> no, but I just I, I think it's important. I mean I, I think that like one of the biggest things that happens in American debate is like a refusal to take seriously the perspective of other countries, right? The extent to which many countries in Asia were like genuinely on board for the idea of don't let countries violate the non-proliferation treaty and build nuclear weapons and are just sort of like not interested in the regional security issues of Persian Gulf monarchies. Like that's their problem, but the nuclear bomb is everybody's problem. And that's why when Iran seemed to be going forward with the nuclear program, like you could get tons of countries to agree to impose sanctions. Right. And so that, and that's that brings us to, I think, a really important point that we need to talk about, which is, you know, what actually happens if Trump chooses not to recertify that Iran is in compliance with the nuclear deal by by Sunday. Right. So this this deadline uh, on October 15th is not part of the Iran deal. Right. This is uh, a Congress thing. Basically, Congress was not super thrilled with the Iran deal for the reasons that we've been discussing, the same reasons that Trump and some of his advisors weren't. And they passed this law called the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act, INARA for short, uh, which— Nice firefly reference. What Inara does is force the president to certify in four different conditions that the Iran deal is working in a variety of ways. Some of them are technical compliance, and some of them are just very broad, subjective stuff that staying in the deal is in U.S. national security interests. Uh, 
If Trump decertifies under Inara, it does not end the deal under any kind of provision. Congress didn't say, if you decertify, then we leave. That would, and by decertify, I mean declare that it's not in the national interest to stay in. What it does do is give Congress the opportunity to impose new sanctions or reimpose old ones on Iran in an expedited fashion. The bill wouldn't be subject to the filibuster, so Democrats couldn't block it if a congressional majority, that is to say Republicans, wanted to just go past new Iran sanctions, which would blow up the deal. Because the whole point is you trade sanctions relief for nuclear inspections. And so if the U.S. is sanctioning them, Iran doesn't have much of a reason to stay in. Absolutely. And just just to kind of make it super clear, I, I think it's really important we don't gloss over the point that Zach just made, is that if Trump chooses not to recertify by the Sunday deadline, that does not mean the Iran deal is dead. It means that it faces a new hurdle that could potentially very seriously unravel the deal because, like Zach said, you know, it basically kicks it over to Congress. And if they decide, you know, because Trump didn't certify that they want to, you know, reimpose sanctions, then that would essentially start the unraveling process, right? And and part of that goes back to the, you know, the other partners in the deal, Matt, that you were talking about, you know, and how they feel about about the economic sanctions and whether they would be willing to, you know, if the deal fell apart, if they'd be willing to ever, you know, renegotiate a deal or, or anything like that, like Trump wants. Now, here we come to a, a really critical point, though. Trump is supposed to decide whether or not to certify that Iran is complying with the deal. But Iran is complying with the deal. <laughs> right. Which, well, that's why the squishy provision of Inara, the fourth one, is really important. The one that's like, is it in U.S. national security interest to continue to waive sanctions? It's roughly the actual language. So right. Trump can say, like, whatever he wants there. But I just think it's important because there's some kind of decision-making process happening in the administration. Ostensibly. But what is not happening, as far as I can tell, is a disagreement among the relevant people as to factually whether or not Iran is complying with the deal. Sometimes people disagree, but that's like not what's happening here. It's not like you have the CIA saying one thing and the State Department saying another thing or Energy Department experts aren't quite sure, right? Like right. everybody agrees that they are complying with the terms of the deal. The consideration of decertifying them anyway is just a it's like a gambit existing in some other universe. It's not a, it's it's not an actual disagreement. Yeah, there was an amazing piece in the Washington Post this morning uh, on that point. And it seems that this whole idea of decertifying came out of the fact that last time, so the certification process happens every 90 days. Last time, Trump wanted to decertify, but he got in a huge fight with his advisory team, most notably Mattis and Secretary of State uh, Rex Tillerson, about decertifying. They're like, you can't do this. It'd be really bad. You'd blow up the deal. Mr. Trump, Charisma, just because Yochi's not yeah, here, I have to say Someone has it. to say Mr. I know. Charisma. It's yeah, for it's bingo. Every time. And so they're all like, you can't do this. And Trump is like, I want to do it. I hate the Iran deal. It's bad. And basically, this idea of decertifying was a way of managing the president's mood, according to the Post piece, that they got, they're trying to get him to agree to decertify, but ask Congress not to pass the new sanctions. And thus, basically make it so Trump doesn't have to say that the Iran deal is working because he hates doing that. 
without actually blowing up the Iran deal and creating an international crisis that could end either in Iran getting nuclear weapons or a war in the Persian Gulf. They say specifically that that H.R. McMaster and other senior advisors came up with a plan, one aimed at accommodating Trump's loathing of the Iran deal as, quote, an embarrassment without killing it outright. Uh, those of us who, who have read McMaster's book will note a certain irony in his role now in crafting American national security policy that is designed to appease the president of the United States' short-term uh, political goals <laughs> rather than providing him with unvarnished military advice. Right. I, I guess it turns out this is harder than he thought <laughs> during his dissertation. Um, but, you know, oof. There, there it is. Oof. Or at least twisting the knife there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that really burned. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's true. It's a, it's a fair. It's absolutely a fair statement. Sorry, listeners. He wrote a book about the military's role in the Vietnam War, where he and, lambasted them for the reasons that Matt was just yeah, describing. Yeah, and, and the entire you know thing was basically about the importance of top generals holding you know speaking truth to power, even when it's uncomfortable. So, you know, so much for that. Um, but to you be know, fair, so, I think managing Lyndon Johnson was easier than managing okay. Donald Trump. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> that's going to go down an entirely different road here. Fair, guys. fair enough. Fair enough. To Sorry, fair. Jen. You- so. So, Zach, you know, what you were saying that, like, there is a a possibility, right, that this gambit could work out, that, you know, Congress, you know, they're not forced to bring it to a vote, right? Like, they don't have to necessarily reimpose sanctions if Trump chooses to decertify. I mean, there's like, I guess, you know, like a 1% chance that Trump might choose to certify, but every reporting we've heard indicates that he's going to, he's going to not, he's going to decertify. Um, But there's a chance, right, that that could work out and the Congress won't reimpose sanctions and then... You know, then it basically kind of comes down to Iran and how Iran responds and whether they think that even that act that Trump did, you know, if he does it not to recertify, that that alone indicates that the U.S. is not interested in, you know, holding up its end of the bargain. So that alone could potentially provoke Iran to take steps. But it could work out. I mean, it's tricky because it's not – it doesn't just go to Iran automatically because – even if Trump tells Congress not to pass new sanctions, they might do it anyway. Right, right. I'm just saying there's a slim chance they won't. If you, this is the kind of thing where, you know, it's, it's I think, useful to take an interdisciplinary perspective. And you walk over to someone who has been paying no attention to this, uh, just like covers Congress, and you're like, <laughs> the key element in this plan, right, is that now. Republican congressional leaders are supposed to just kind of like stick this whole issue in their back pocket and not bring it to the floor. Um, And like, maybe, but there's this like constant turmoil in the Republican congressional caucus with various people accusing other people of being sellouts, Steve Bannon trying to recruit primary challenges to everybody, this huge sign-on letter from conservative leaders uh, to demand that Mitch McConnell and the whole Senate leadership... uh, you know, quit or something like that. And I, I don't know that, like, Richard Vigory disagrees with H.R. McMaster about the merits of the Iran deal, but people who don't care about this at all are really eager to find pretexts to mobilize backbench Republicans for a revolt against leadership. Right. And this kind of thing, right, that Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell are trying to stymie new actions against Iran, which right. conservatives have been telling, have been hearing from conservative leaders for years right. about how terrible this deal is, how even Donald Trump has decertified them. It's a really 
Obviously, if everybody holds it together and like plays their assigned parts in this drama, and you know, we like uh, Mattis like winks hard enough at, at the Europeans, and the Iranians are like, "Oh, I read a good Vox explainer on what's happening." <laughs> like it could all work out fine, but it just it also it also might not, right? And and there's no reason for it, right? I, that that we've been given, right? Like, it's it's essentially Trump wanting to look like he followed through. I mean, he, you know, he was spoke at that rally that, you know, he's standing there at the podium, you know, during that the campaign that says, you know, end the deal.com or something. It's like a huge sign. And he's standing there like railing against the Iran deal saying it's you know, the worst deal in the history of everything. And, you know, it's it's an embarrassment, right? And so if he just, you know, every 90 days keeps going, yeah, but I recertified it. Like that doesn't look good. But also, you know, like you said, like there's this whole kind of massive tsunami that could be triggered if he actually follows through on that. So yeah, I mean, you know, it's pretty easy for someone like, you know, Steve Bannon and Breitbart or, you know, anyone who feels like challenging, you know, the GOP in Congress by saying, oh, look, look how soft they are in Iran. You know, they talk big, but they can't follow through. And like, that's a risky gamble, especially given like the dysfunction of like astronomical levels of dysfunction in the current, like, GOP and there's always an outside chance that like Chuck Schumer or some other more hawkish Democrat will just like hit Republicans from the right. I, don't, I mean, I, I hope he won't. Right. But it's it's like the idea that the president of the United States is going to take an irresponsible political cop out against the advice of all of his foreign policy, military and intelligence advisors. And then we're going to kick it to members of Congress to do the responsible right. and restrained and like cross thing. our fingers that's, and hope that they do. For better or worse, like that's actually not how the American political system has traditionally worked. It's like to Congress that we look for the pointless grandstanding. And then the executive branch is supposed to take responsibility for, for outcomes. It's, it's just bonkers to me that all of this is happening because of a need to manage the emotions of the president, right? And his personal feelings of slight and peak. I'm sure this has happened in past White Houses. And in part, we're a little spoiled by Obama, who is famous for like not letting his emotions get in the way of sort of judgment or not letting pride get in his way, stuff like that anyway. People always call him Spock, and that's sort of why. Setting all of that to the side— now, this this perhaps subtext of past administrations where the president's mood set policy to a degree are text. Like this is – we know that this is what's driving American foreign policy, not any calculations of rational interest. But the fact that as one expert put it when I asked him about why Trump would want to do this, that recertifying the deal every 90 days makes Trump feel like a cuck. And so that, I, that's what it is. I, I mean, I just want to push back a little bit on that. I mean, I, I do think a lot of this is related to Trump's, you know, personal emotions and his thoughts and feelings, like gut feelings about the Iran deal. But there are plenty of people who oppose the Iran deal as well. So it's also a political calculation, right? I mean, he did run in part on, you know, I'm going to, you know, cancel or renegotiate the Iran deal. Oh, no, no, wait a minute, right? There's no leak that says that Trump is sitting there being like, I'm worried about a primary challenge from Ted Cruz because— Right, but I'm saying I'm one of his— with the Iran deal. One of the things that he campaigned on over and over again, and, you know, people would cheer, was, you know, end the Iran deal. And, you know, he had um, General Flynn up there, you know, talking about that, too. You know, you have Bibi Benjamin Netanyahu, who's pushing hard, you know, against the Iran deal, too. So just—it's just, just it's right. not just Trump's emotions. I mean, it is a political calculation Trump, in Trump part. Trump at least— sometimes likes to follow through on his campaign promises. But <laughs> right. also, I mean, I, I think one way I think about Donald Trump is if you imagine Donald Trump as like an old 
rich, slightly racist guy who watches a lot of Fox News and doesn't understand that it's like a scam. But but now he's president, right? Sometimes Donald Trump got up there on the debate stage and said stuff, and like all the other Republicans would disagree with him. And so when he gets to Washington and he surrounds himself with Republican advisors and they're like, you know what, Donald, like actually global trade is like more complicated than you made it out to be. He's at least been prepared like mentally for the fact that he always knew that was a contentious view and like maybe there's going to be some give and take. There was no hint in the 2016 politics, right? Like in congressional races, in the Republican presidential primary, this reality that whether you like the deal or not, that it was a diplomatic agreement that had a fair amount of stickiness to it. Right. And that shoving the genie back in the bottle was not really something that, like, veteran military professionals would want you to try to do. That was not something that Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz or anybody else was articulating. So uh, Trump, to, to, to offer a little sympathy here, he shows up in the Oval Office um, someone recommends to him Jim Mattis, the famous general, the war hero who Obama fired because Obama was too soft on Iran. And then he pulls him in and they're all like, uh, actually, Donald, you can't tear up the Iran deal, right? He's like, what the fuck, guys? Because they were all saying that he should tear up the Iran deal. And like now they're telling him, no, that was just bullshit that we cooked up <laughs> right. to try to win elections. Right. But he didn't know it was bullshit. Like he took it seriously. Yeah, or maybe he did, but you know, who knows? But, and I think that's, it's a really important point, you know, that we talk about the stickiness of the deal, right? Like, like you said, you know, when we were debating whether or not we should accept the deal, there were solid arguments on both sides, whether or not you agree with one or the other. I, happened to think that the Iran deal was a good thing, but there were intelligent people who had serious problems with the deal. Let's just say that. Um, I didn't agree with all of their conclusions, but that's neither here nor there. But now that the deal happened, right, it's signed, it's in effect, it's been in effect for several years, like, what that means is that, like, if we are, you know, if the U.S. did end up pulling out, that would have really broad implications far beyond just the Iran deal, far beyond just the Iranian nuclear program, right? Like we're talking about, you know, the idea that if the U.S., you know, if U.S. president makes a global agreement, or, you know, a diplomatic agreement, like how can you trust that when we have elections every four years? So do you even make deals with the U.S. anymore if the next president is just going to come in and rip it up? Like that's a serious blow to our credibility on the diplomatic I, stage. I'm a little skeptical of that narrative, um, though I see the political appeal to Democrats who are arguing that, for the same reason that I'm skeptical that Obama's uh, decision not to bomb Syria when he said there was a red line affected the way that, for instance, Vladimir Putin thought about Ukraine, right? Credibility is assessed by countries in a variety of different ways, and they're sure. not all on the basis of like what you do with another country. Oftentimes, they're based on the specific relations between your country and the United States. So North Korea may not look at Iran and be like, okay, they didn't agree to a non-proliferation agreement. Like North Korea has a lot of its own issues and its own perceptions of the U.S., which are entirely independent of how the United States handles Iran. Uh, so I, I don't know if I buy that there's like a big credibility impact. I think the big impact here is Iran specific, but it's but we're understating how significant it is, right? Again, the choice before the Iran deal was horrible. It was one of two things. 
It was either Iran is allowed to get close to a nuclear weapon or even build a nuclear weapon, which creates another nuclear state and the risk of nuclear exchange, which would kill millions of people, or the U.S. bombs Iran. And that delays the Iranian nuclear program. It can't end it. We just don't have the ability to do that. And it gets thousands of people dead and completely destabilizes the Middle East. Those are terrible choices. And if Trump decertifies the trust that was built in that allowed the deal to happen, that the Obama administration and and the uh, Iranian government painstakingly built together over the course of years is, is evaporated. And that might well destroy the deal even if Congress doesn't pass sanctions, and even if Trump doesn't unilaterally reimpose sanctions, which, by the way, he could basically at any point. Right. I, I want to stand up for the impact on, on North Korea, though, because I, I, I agree with you, Zach, that the sort of credibility linkage is often made in, in a sloppy kind of way. But here's the thing. There's people sitting around in Pyongyang, and they've been debating for years. They're like, look, is the United States of America, a completely irrational rogue state that just does <laughs> maniacal things, or if we may think like it's an evil regime, but still one that's capable of assessing self-interest and behaving rationally, right? That's like an important consideration that they have there. What we're looking at with Iran is, you know, if we hadn't made the deal in the first place. They would say, well, look, the Americans, they're like aggressive warmongers. Uh, they, they like the idea of bombs away. Who knows? But we have to look at our own situation on its own terms. But the idea of saying that Iran is not complying with the deal when they are complying with the deal and then asking Congress to not impose the consequences of noncompliance because to follow through on what they say they should do would be too destructive, and then to possibly have the whole thing unravel, and now Iran is building a nuclear weapon. But previously, if they had been building a nuclear weapon, they would have also been facing crippling economic sanctions. It's it's such an own goal right. that it calls into question, like, what is the point of dealing with the United States like, it changes how you have to think about the decision-making process in the United States. Like, can you count on, like, means and ends working to your advantage? In need of great talent for your business but short on time? You don't have to get lost in a huge stack of resumes to find your perfect hire. You just need the right tools, smarter tools. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click, so you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then, ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting, so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you, it finds them. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And the easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish, all in one place. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Worldly. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Worldly. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Worldly. And now let's go to elsewhere. 
So last week, we asked you, our devoted worldly listeners, to send in your questions that you wanted us to answer on air. And this week, we're going to answer a few of those questions. So the first one comes from Kirk, who emailed to ask about the independence referendum that was held this past Sunday in the Spanish region of Catalonia. So so what's going on there, Zach? What's, what's going on there? It sounded like you were setting up for an audio clip, but there's no audio this week. Surprise! No, look. We're the, your audio clip. Catalonia is a historically distinct region of Spain. They have their own language, uh, their own set of history, but it's been part of Spain for several centuries now. So it simultaneously has a distinct national identity, but also really strong ties to the central Spanish state. And this referendum that was held uh, didn't have huge buy-in from the Catalan public. It passed overwhelmingly because the only people who voted were independent supporters. All the people who didn't vote boycotted it. And then the Spanish government cracked down really heavily and, and violently at times, which as far as I can tell, built support for independence that wasn't there previously. So you have this weird situation where uh, an area that wasn't previously violently repressed has decided it wants to be independence. And now there's a degree of violent repression that you really don't normally see in an advanced, wealthy Western democracy. Right. And so, you know, I think it's important to, to point out that, that Catalonia is one of the most, if not the most, economically prosperous region of Spain. I'm, I think it's the most. Um, it accounts for something like 15% of Spain's population and, and 20% of its total economic output. In case you were wondering, that's where Barcelona is. Right. Um, <laughs> there's a reason why the Spanish government Right. There's like real economic reasons beyond just the straight political reasons that the Spanish government in Madrid, you know, the central Spanish government doesn't want this entire chunk of its country to just break off and become its own, you know, independent sovereign nation. Um, you know, and there are people, there are plenty of Catalans, as you know, people from Catalonia are called, um, who agree, who right, who also don't support independence, who don't want to break off. You know, they like being part of Spain. They like being part of the EU. You know, they don't want to break off, but then, you know, you have this other very vocal group who, you know, are pushing very hard for independence. So, like you said, they had this referendum. Um, Which it, was illegal under national Spanish law. The right, government like, would not allow it. Right. The Constitutional Court uh, declared it illegal, and Mariano Rajoy, the Spanish prime minister, um, said that, you know, he would basically to take any means necessary to stop it. So, he sent out the Spanish National Guard. They, you know— beat up protesters at polling stations. They, you know, confiscated boxes of ballots, things like that. It was a, you know, a horrifying, bloody scene on the streets. But here's the thing. So there was like a weird development just recently. So after this, you know, referendum that passed, although, you know, like you said, not everybody voted for it or whatever. So the the Catalonian president, right, was supposed to go and stand up in front of the Spanish parliament and everyone expected him to declare independence, right? Unilaterally just say, okay, like this passed, this is what we're doing. And, you know, there are thousands of people in the streets expecting him and he goes up and he goes, well, our referendum passed. So, you know, we have the right to declare independence. And then he just kind of stopped and said, we're not going to write this second. We're going to, let's talk about it. And it just, everyone was just kind of like, wait, what? What, what just happened there? It's like decertifying a deal, <laughs> but then not closing <laughs> it. It's nice throwback. So yeah, so now it's like in this weird like limbo state. So then yesterday, you know, the Spanish prime minister came out and said, did you declare independence or, or not? And like he's going to, you know, act as if 
he did declare independence anyway, even though he didn't. So, like, as of right now, Catalonia is still part of Spain for the foreseeable future. At least the next week or so, it would probably stay that way. Um, I guess, you know, there there's talk about having, you know, European mediators come in and try to, like, talk through how to figure this out. Um, you know, the Spanish prime minister is threatening to essentially come in and take over full control and get rid of all of the, you know, the semi-sovereignty that they had, um, you know, in Catalonia and just completely take over. So it's still really volatile, um, I think is basically the way to kind of leave it. it it's it's not really clear how this is going to end up playing out. Um, so keep an eye on it, and we will probably almost certainly come back to this at some point. So great. Our next question uh, comes via Twitter from at uh, Groot10T, who— I am Groot! Only second to the other impression that Zach is known for, Gollum. Um, so, Groot Tenty asks, why shouldn't the EU, quote, pivot to Asia with the USA's current mercurial leadership? Zach, you want to take a crack at that one? Yeah, I think what that question is asking is whether Europe could get the same kind of political and economic support that it gets from the United States by partnering with some kind of Asian countries. And— like, that, that sort of makes sense abstractly. Uh, but the answer is that no, it very much could not. Because the United States is by far the world's most powerful country. It has the largest and strongest military. It is one of the only ones, probably the only one, that has a reason to be the guarantor of European security. Right. To put a bunch of troops there who are willing to defend European countries against attackers like, uh, I don't know, it rhymes with Pasha. Um, and is it Masha? It's it's Masha. Yeah, it's actually yeah. Prussia. Um <laughs> But the the point is that the U.S. is politically volatile right now, but it's also from a European security point of view and from the minimal amount of defense spending that they are allowed to engage in because the U.S. subsidizes their defense, economically irreplaceable. The U.S. just it, – it has to do that. And Europeans and, and, frankly, a lot of Asian countries like South Korea and Japan don't have a choice about who else they would like to secure them. Uh, the, the other thing I'd just say is that European uh, – institutions do not, as currently constructed, have the capacity to execute any kind of significant strategic shifts. Um, some kinds of things, I mean, I don't know exactly what a pivot to Asia would be, but like even just like the rhetoric of a pivot involves a level of suddenness and decisiveness that the European institutions could not muster. Like nobody is going to pivot anywhere. They are in a process of institutional reform. It's possible that at some point there will emerge an entity that is capable of like sitting down and making a decision like we're over the United States of America, but like they are really not not there. Um, and you, it's relevant to this Catalonia situation too. Like you would think it's like, what's up? What's up with Europe? And it's like, nobody knows. There's a million fucking people up there in Brussels and it takes forever for them to sort anything out. Yeah. Matt and I were talking about this before the show. Uh, Europe doesn't really have a good way of managing secession movements like Catalonia, like Scotland potentially leaving the UK, uh, which it tried to do a little bit ago and now might again after Brexit. Uh, and, and that illustrates that, one, Europe need like the European central government, that is to say the EU, which is not really a government, though we like to pretend that it is. It's, it's too weak to do that. It doesn't have the resources or the ability to control policy in its subsidiary areas. And, and two, it just means that 
there, there are a lot of questions about the state, the basic structure of how global politics operates, who gets to do what when, not just Europe, but sort of more broadly, that aren't fully fleshed out and are not very well understood, even though we have a more structured and uh, in many ways more cogent and liberal and connected world order than we've ever had previously in human history, pretty much. Great. So our final question uh, for today um, is probably my favorite one, just because it's pretty fun. Um, it comes from uh, comes via email from, and I, I apologize, I'm not sure if it's Isaac or Isak, but it's I-S-A-K. Um, I'm going to go with Isaac, uh, who asked each of us to name our favorite book about foreign policy. And he said it could be one that got you interested in the field, an underrated favorite, or one that's just timely and that you think deserves attention. So I'm going to go first because I can. Uh, so mine is a book called Orientalism by a man named Edward Said. Uh, it was first published back in 1978. Um, Said died back in 2003. So unfortunately, uh, I can't tag him on Twitter later on. Um, but uh, just basically, um, Orientalism basically fucked my whole world up. Uh, I read it in grad school. Um, one of my professors at DU, Nader Hashimi, uh, assigned it. And basically, it's a really complex book. But it, essentially, it boils down to it, it's about how American and European writers, scholars, artists, politicians, going back hundreds and hundreds of years from Dante to Napoleon to George W. Bush, uh, have consistently constructed this kind of false mythological narrative of the of the Arab Muslim Middle East um, as this place that's, you know, savage, dangerous, backwards, and, and, you know, inferior to the, you know, enlightened, rational, humane, progressive West. And, you know, this, this narrative is essentially disconnected from any actual reality on the ground, right? It treats the Arab Muslim kind of Middle East as this monolithic entity that never changes, um, so it's a really fascinating book. It, it really helps explain a lot of the rhetoric that we actually still hear to this day about Muslims and about the Middle East and about Islam. Um, and yeah, so I actually used to keep a copy of it above my desk when I was a Middle East researcher just to help remind me not to be a complete and total Orientalist hack. Uh, I'm going to recommend not not like necessarily the greatest book of all time, but one that I think is underrated and is, is very timely and, and sort of relevant to to a lot of things that, that we talk about these days. There's a book uh, written by a, a man named Glenn Morgan. It's called The Idea of a European Superstate. Um, and Very relevant. <laughs> yes. Well, and so his argument, which is interesting, he, he takes a, an unusually philosophical sort of uh, approach to this question of the European Union and European unity. And he says that basically the kind of business efficiency arguments – that have driven the European integration project are simply not important enough to justify the kind of compromises of democracy and national sovereignty that European people are being asked for, but that at the same time, the project is in fact valuable and that the real rationale for European integration has always been national security and, and so to speak, the the, the good of, of Western civilization, right, in, in some sense, and, and liberalism and, and democracy. And that if you go back to the European coal and steel community. That wasn't about finding a better way to make steel. It was about trying to prevent war between France and Germany right. and defeat the Soviet Union. And that that the EU has to sort of get back in touch with that and to recognize that dependence on the United States and the fragile American political system as the sole global guarantor of 
liberal humanism and democracy is itself dangerous and that Europe needs to build a capable centralized state that would be able to do things like pivot to Asia or formulate an Iran policy or decide whether or not Catalonia should have its own status separate from from Madrid. Um, This is a fascinating book. These are ideas that are like really not on the table in European discussions, but it is adjacent to almost everything that happens in that part of the world. And I think for me, uh, the book is is a little bit different from the two that you cited. Um, it's the title's Political Theory and International Relations. It's by a political theorist at Princeton named Charles Bites. And uh, Bites's argument is less about the way the world actually works than the way that it ought to work and the way that we should think about uh, ethics and morality as it plays in international relations. And typically, we start from the assumption that countries have a principal obligation to look out for the interests of their own citizens, and that morality in international relations is basically about prioritizing the national interest. And Bites systematically demolishes this view uh, and the view that states should be seen basically as people who have rights that are equivalent to individuals in relation to each other, like a right not to be attacked necessarily in the way that, or that any country has the right, a government has the right not to be attacked in the way that a person has a right not to be punched. Uh, And this, I think, is really important because we often assume a lot of things about what countries should and shouldn't do without understanding whether or not this is based on an ethically sustainable view of what countries should, in fact, do, one that makes any sense. So we often say... For example, when we were talking about Puerto Rico last week, people seem to think that it really matters whether or not Puerto Ricans are American citizens in terms of what the U.S. government owes them. And I just don't think that's true. I think that when there was a disaster in Haiti, which is very close to Puerto Rico, the U.S. government rightfully intervened and helped provide aid for people who were suffering there, even though it wasn't part of the United States. And that is because there are ethical obligations that transcend national boundaries and that people don't deserve moral consideration from one government just because they happen to have had the luck to be born there. That moral obligation transcends national boundary. Amen. Um, All right. So that's all for us this week. Um, I want to thank our senior producer, Jillian Weinberger, our audio engineer and producer, Peter Leonard. And thanks to our social media manager, Julie Bogan. And special thanks to Matt for being on the show with us today. Uh, If you like our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always email us at worldly at vox.com. Until next time.